0: What has your reading been like during the pandemic? Apparently, the general level of reading around the world has risen significantly, just from people being locked down and confined to their homes. I've been reading all kinds of stuff. Um, one of the things I've been doing is discovering, once again, my, my love for murder mysteries, which is something I haven't done for a while. read a few murder mysteries over the last few months. One of the other things I've been reading has been a number of articles, just trying to get a hold, a grasp on what's happening in the world. Particularly good one that was published in the Atlantic magazine in the US last month was why the coronavirus is so confusing. It's quite long, but it's well-written, and it doesn't try to oversimplify something that's actually quite complex. And then towards the end, after all the stats and the biomedical stuff, in the second last paragraph... The writer writes this, The desire to name an antagonist, be it the Chinese Communist Party or Donald Trump, disregards the many aspects of 20th century life that made the pandemic possible. Humanity's relentless expansion into wild spaces, soaring levels of air travel, chronic underfunding of public health, and there's a whole bunch of other things he adds in there. At the end he says, it may be easier to believe that the coronavirus was deliberately unleashed than to accept the harsher truth that we built a world that we built a world that was prone to it but not ready for it. Another article had this quote: The total number of disease outbreaks has more than tripled each decade since the 1980s. That's kind of scary actually. The total number of de- disease outbreaks has more than tripled each decade since the 1980s. More than two-thirds of the diseases originated in animals, and most of those were directly transmitted from wildlife to people. Habitat destruction, like deforestation and agricultural development on wild land, is increasingly forcing disease-carrying wild animals closer to humans, allowing new strains of infectious diseases to thrive. And the Guardian republished an article from a year ago that reported that human society is in jeopardy from the accelerating decline of the earth's natural life support systems. How do we as Christians relate to these kinds of statements? Do we brush them off as the rantings of left-wing tree-huggers? Or is there a challenge here for us to recover a biblical view on the relationship between humanity and the earth. We've been talking about living from the inside out. We started off talking about living with God and we talked about our hearts, the very core of our being, where only you and God know what's going on there. And about the importance of having Jesus at the centre of our lives, or as Peter puts it, to honour the Lord Christ as holy in our hearts. Then we talked about living with yourself and the importance of Um, developing uh, humility and uh, honest assessment of ourselves. Two weeks ago, we talked about being people of integrity as we discussed living with your neighbour. Then last week, we moved out even further to talk about living in society and what the Bible means when it talks about justice. And this week, we move to our last circle as we talk about living in creation. Now, the reason We're doing this study is not so I can make PowerPoint presentations with pretty concentric circles. We started off by talking about how easy it is to be shaped by external forces, how to be shaped from the outside in, by what people expect of us, by what society expects of us, rather than by living out of God's presence in our hearts. The response is to get things in the right order to make sure that we have God first, so that we can live healthy, well-balanced lives that flow outward from our relationship with him. And that applies just as much to our relationship with the physical world around us as it does to our relationships with society, with our neighbor, and with ourselves. So what does Scripture have to say to our relationship with the physical world around us? Perhaps we can begin to answer that question by asking another one. What do we call all of this? We're surrounded by stuff. Earth, air, trees, grass, animals. What do we call it all? Because actually what we call something is important. It it reflects our relationship to it. So you call your parents mom and dad because you have a different relationship with them from people who might call them Ken and Winnie. And the Bible starts with the words, In the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. So Jews and Christians have always talked about the universe as creation, something that was made by God, the creator. And creation was only made by God, it depends on him for his existence. Hebrews 1 says that God sustains all things by his powerful word now these days the only places we are likely to hear all of this referred to as creation is in religious circles elsewhere you're much more likely to hear the world around us described as nature not creation and there's actually a significant difference there they're not just labels because nature almost by definition is a closed system that's why we talk about natural sciences They're closed systems that don't actually have any reference to God. God doesn't fit into the the categories. Calling it creation reminds us that it belongs to God, and it's valuable as a result. Packed away in the basement of our house in Canada, we have some blue and white china from England, and some little cups from Japan. They're quite pretty in their own right. But that isn't the main reason I value them. When my dad died, he left very little. My inheritance amounted to an envelope with his old passports in it, a tape recorder, which was actually stolen out of our house a couple of years later, and these few pieces of china. And the main reason I value them is because they're about the only things I still have that go back to my childhood, And in many cases, we value things because of their connection to other things, and particularly to people that we value. Like the China, creation is beautiful and valuable in its own right. But it's more valuable because it's God's creation. It belongs to our Heavenly Father. Verse 4 of Genesis 1 says <clears throat> God saw that the light was good and he separated the light from the darkness. Verse 10 God called the dry land dry ground land and the gathered waters he called seas and God saw that it was good. Verse 12 The land produced vegetation plants bearing seed according to their kinds and trees bearing fruit with seed in it according to their kinds and God saw that it was good. In verse 18, after making the sun, moon, and stars to govern the day and the night and to separate light from darkness, God saw that it was good. Verse 21, so God created the great creatures of the sea and every living and moving thing with which water teems according to their kinds and every winged bird according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. Verse 25, God made the wild animals according to their kinds, livestock according to their kinds, And all the creatures that move along the ground according to their kinds. And God saw that it was good. In verse 31, God saw all that he had made, and it was very good. Do you think maybe God wants us to know that his creation is a good thing? Seven times in chapter 1 of Genesis, God says that what he made is good. Six of them before humanity turned turned up on the scene. In the Bible, the number seven usually symbolizes completeness. So Genesis 1 is telling us that in the beginning, God's creation was completely good. And human beings are part of God's creation. Verses 24 to 27 say, And God said, Let the land produce living creatures according to their kinds, livestock, creatures that move along the ground, wild animals, each according to its kind. And it was so. God made the wild animals according to their kinds, the livestock according to their kinds, and all the creatures that move along the ground according to their kinds, and God saw that it was good. Then God said, let us make man in our image, in our likeness, and let them rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the air, over the livestock, over all the earth, and over all the creatures that move along the ground. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. This is day six of God's creation. It was Augustine in the 4th century who first wrote that the days of creation are a literary structure, not a historical one. The first three days are about God forming creation. In day one, God separated light and darkness. In day two, he separated the atmosphere and the water. And in day three, he separated the dry land from the sea. The second three days are about God filling what he had formed. Day four, God fills the sky with the sun, moon, and stars to mark day and night. Day five, God fills the sky, God fills the air with the birds and the water with sea creatures. And day six, God fills the dry land with land animals. Human beings are made on day six. We're a kind of land animal. We don't swim or fly, we walk on the land. It's easy with all our technology to forget that we too are part of creation. Certainly over the last few centuries, human beings, especially in the West, have begun to behave as if we were in some way different from creation. But every living thing on the face of the planet is built from the same biological genetic building blocks, RNA and DNA. Francis of Assisi is famous for preaching to animals. Now that may seem strange, but he grasped that we have a great deal in common with the other creatures on the earth. We're not some kind of heavenly creature that's fallen to earth. We belong here. The word translated as man or Adam in Genesis 1 and 2, it's the same word in Hebrew, comes from a word for dust or earth. It could just as well be translated as earthling. But what about this bit where it says that Human beings are made in God's image to rule over the fish and the birds and the animals. Doesn't that separate us out? Well, yes and no. There have been thousands of books, millions of words, written on what it means for human beings to be made in the image of God. Now, since most of those books are written by theologians who spend their lives thinking about God, it's hardly surprising that many of them have come to the conclusion that being made in the image of God means being able to think, being able to make rational judgments, come to logical conclusions. And that may be part of it. But there's another meaning that most Old Testament theologians, scholars today, think is actually closer to the the core of what's being said here. In the ancient world, rulers would set up huge statues of themselves in all the cities in their their, uh, empire to remind everybody, of who's in charge. The symbols, the statues, the images were symbols of the ruler's authority. That's not just an ancient thing. The Soviets were particularly good at this. Everywhere you went, there were these huge statues, mainly of Lenin. And the same is true of authoritarian systems today. You can go to Turkmenistan or go to Korea, North North Korea and you'll see these huge statues of the leader. Statues. Images of the ruler are there to remind you who's in charge. And lo and behold, what does it say in Genesis? Let us make man in our image, in our likeness, and let them rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the air, over the livestock, over all the earth. Human beings bear God's image first and foremost as his representative rulers in creation. In 1967, there was an article written that has had a profound influence on the modern environmental movement. It's called The Historical Roots of Our Ecological Crisis. And it basically lays the blame for the ecological crisis, environmental crisis, all that kind of stuff, all the problems. lays the blame for all of them at the feet of the church. And it argues that the idea of a God outside of nature, rather than a God in nature, has led to abuse of the world around us. Now, personally, I think the blame lies more with the Enlightenment and its raising of humanity to an absolute authority. But the writer was writing from that kind of a background, so obviously he was blind to that as an option. But this is something that people believe that if we were still worshipping trees, we wouldn't have all these problems. And this idea in Scripture, they often don't speak to this point, to this idea in Scripture of humans being made to rule over creation as proof that this is the problem, that it's our abusive rule of creation that's a problem. But in the Bible, any kind of authority always comes with a duty of care. That applies to kings, which is why in the Old Testament, the major metaphor for kingship is a shepherd, someone who cares for the sheep. It applies to leaders of organizations, of companies, of churches. They all have a duty of care. And it applies to our place in creation, Genesis 2.15. The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and to take care of it. We're God's gardeners. He's told us to look after his creation, to work it and to take care of it. Now most of us have probably never employed a gardener. But one of the houses that we rented in Pakistan had an immense garden with a huge lawn and uh, all kinds of trees, ten sour orange trees, four plum trees, four apricot trees, a lime tree, two persimmons trees, and a loquat tree, not to mention roses, night-blossoming jasmine which smelled wonderful when you came and drove into the, the driveway in the evening after being out, and all kinds of other flowers. And quite rightly, the owner insisted that we employ a gardener and that we pay for it, actually, pay for him. Uh, So we paid for the gardener to look after the owner's um, property. It's not easy to find a good gardener. Some just just do a bad job and things die. Others have good skills, but they work the garden for their own benefit, not yours. We had a gardener in another house that we rented in, in Pakistan. Um, And he planted lots of radishes, lots of them. We don't like radishes, but he does. But a good gardener can make the garden blossom, become even more fruitful and beautiful than when it started, and still have it be productive for the owner. Unfortunately, we haven't been very good gardeners. We haven't been very good stewards of God's creation. And that doesn't just go back to the last few centuries. We may talk about pollution and global warming and habitat loss and even pandemics. But those are just the most recent expressions of our selfish attitude to the world around us. An attitude the Bible calls sin, which results in us living in conflict with God, with each other, and also with our environment. In Genesis 3, humanity rebels against God and they end up in conflict with each other and with God. Then in verse 17 of chapter 3, that conflict and rebellion spreads out to affect all of creation. And God says, cursed is the ground because of you. The Bible is clear that the reason for environmental problems is human selfishness. The idea that we can take what we want without asking whether it's good stewardship of God's creation. And we see that in the Amazon, where forests are chopped down, to make space to grow, to raise beef cattle, or to grow soybeans, and then there's a thunderstorm, and all, and huge amounts of topsoil are uh, just washed away, leaving these great gullies scouring the, the, the landscape. We see it in the way that gold um, gold mining results in the poisoning of water sources with arsenic. We see it in turtles and albatrosses and whales and other forms of ocean life dying because they get wrapped up in our plastic trash. We seem to think we can just keep dumping our garbage into God's good creation, it'll just kind of magically disappear. That's not how a good gardener behaves. But there is good news. The good news is that God has done something about it. When Isaiah prophesies about the future coming of Jesus in chapter 11, part of what he says is, the wolf will lie down with the lamb The leopard will lie down with the goat, the calf and the lion, the yearling together, and a little little child will lead them. The cow will feed with the bear, their young will lie down together, and the lion will eat straw like the ox. The infant will play near the hole of the cobra, and the young child put his hand into the viper's nest. They will neither harm nor destroy on all my holy mountain, for the earth will be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea." In Romans 8, Paul writes, The creation waits in eager expectation for the sons of God to be revealed. For the creation was subjected to frustration, not by its own choice, but by the will of the one who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will be liberated from its bondage to decay and brought into the glorious freedom of the children of God. There's an attitude in some parts of the church that says, Why care for the earth when it's all going to burn up anyway. We need to focus on saving souls for heaven. It's not an either-or question. You can do both. And if anything, the command to care for creation is a lot older than the one to make disciples of all nations. And lots of Christians think that when we die, we go to be in heaven with God forever in a disembodied state, and therefore creation isn't really that important. But as we talked about in the series on Jesus' words from the cross, that isn't actually what the Bible says. What theology calls the intermediate state is more like the waiting room, where those who die before Jesus' return go to wait until he restores creation and makes it new for us to live in again with him. So our internal future is actually tied up with the future of creation and vice versa. People often say the climax of creation is the creation of humanity. It's not, you know. That may be where chapter 1 of Genesis ends, but the chapter breaks are only 700 years old. The climax of creation, the first tale of creation, is actually day 7, the Sabbath, which is a picture of God and his creation at rest together. The appropriate way to live in creation, therefore, is neither to use it up and destroy it and throw it away like a used tissue, nor is it at the other extreme to make the earth some kind of a god that we value above all else. The Christian way to live in creation is to recognize that, one, it's God's creation, it's not ours, it's his, and that we are part of creation. That we're that we are responsible to God for how we treat his creation. We're part of creation, but we have a special role in it, to care for it. That sin is the reason that we make a mess of it. But that God's plan for redemption, doesn't include the redemption of us? It includes the redemption and restoration of creation, and that we have a part in that. So over the last five weeks, We've gone from the most intimate center of our being, what the Bible calls our heart, to the whole of creation and our place in it. And there's no aspect of our lives that God does not claim lordship over. He's concerned that there be nothing and no one other than himself at the center of our lives. He's concerned that we walk in humility and have a realistic assessment of ourselves, both as sinners and as redeemed sons and daughters of the king. He's concerned that we treat our neighbours well and that we walk in integrity. He's concerned that we look out for the weak and the marginalised in our society. And he's concerned that we treat creation with respect because it's his, it's not ours. Now for some of us, that might mean that not buying those disposable bottles of water. Because they aren't really disposable. They last for 500 to 1,000 years. Each one of those things lasts for 500 to 1,000 years and they litter God's good creation for all of that time. In fact, avoiding single-use plastics as a whole is one small thing that each one of us can do to care for God's creation. And I'd encourage you to pray about this. And take it just as seriously as any of the other topics we've addressed over this series. What would the Lord have you do as your part in caring for his creation? As your part in being a good student? A good steward? Let's pray together, shall we? Lord Jesus. Lord. So often we just seem to be oblivious to the impact our lives have on the world around us, on your good creation, the ways in which our lives impact it, and so often destroy or diminish it. Lord, help us to be good stewards of the creation you've given to us. We recognize, Lord, that we're small, each one of us. There are few things that we can do that in any way impact this huge system of um, exploiting the world when we should be managing it for your glory. But Lord, help us. Give us creative ideas. Help us, Lord, to walk as people of integrity in this area too. Show us the things that we can do as individuals, Lord, to make a small impact upon your world, for the good of your world, because it's yours and you care about it. And Lord, too, in this last lockdown, we, um, we hope it's the last one, anyway. We? Uh, we pray for your grace, as after this, things will be opening up more and more. And we pray for wisdom, Lord. We just talked about the duty of care that leaders have. And we pray for our leaders that they would exercise that duty of care to be wise and cautious even as things are opened up and they'd be um, monitoring for the risk of any new flare-ups. Lord, we pray for our neighbours, as this must be particularly terrible for them over this weekend. Uh, It's like having Christmas cancelled. Lord, give them grace as they would normally be out visiting family and friends over the Byram. Give them grace, we pray, Lord. Lord, we pray for people returning to work in the coming weeks. Once again, that there be no upsurge in cases, that they be able to practice wisdom. We pray for Linda and Catherine as they recover from their surgery. And we continue to pray for Janira and Vic and others who struggle with health issues. And Lord, we pray for the people and the leadership of the churches in the city, for AIK, for Lighthouse, for the Orthodox Church, for the Russian, and other churches in Konyalta and other churches around the city, Lord. May we all come out of this time with testimonies of experiencing your presence, with testimonies of how your people have been supportive of one another. May we all come out of this time, Lord, stronger, because we've gone through it with you.